0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: In Russia, you know, the real, um, how shall I say, the, the front lines of the battle for power are not in the Duma and they're not in the demonstration in the streets. They're behind the scenes. Absolutely, the kind of fight that took place that replaced the Bannon and um Flynn people in the United States. That kind of thing is what has been happening since pretty much 1993-95 in Russia. The behind-the-scenes struggle of people who are close to power. That's where the real fight is.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Andre Rayevsky, who blogs as the Vineyard Saker at thesaker.is. Today's show, Trump and Putin setting the record straight. The Saker was born in a military family of white Russian refugees in Western Europe where he lived most of his life. After completing two college degrees in the United States, he returned to Europe where he worked as a military analyst until he lost his career due to his vocal opposition to the Western-sponsored wars in Chechnya, Croatia, Bosnia and Kosovo. After retraining as a software engineer, he returned to the United States where he now lives with his family. He has been blogging since 2007 as The Saker and his analysis has taken the Internet by storm. He is the author of The Essential Saker from the trenches of the emerging multipolar world. Today we discuss the new Trump administration, the neocons, the wars in the Ukraine and Syria, parallels between the former Soviet Union and the United States, U.S.-Russia relations, Iran, Putin, and the possibilities of war. Saker, welcome
1: to the program. Thank you, it is a real pleasure and a big honor. I've been following your your work for many years, and I'm a big admirer, so it's really my honor and my pleasure.
0: Well, the feeling is mutual. It's great to have you on the program, finally. Many who voted for Donald Trump for president did so because his campaign promised a major shift in US foreign policy away from neocon foreign wars. Trump consistently said he would seek a rapprochement with Russia and wanted to work with Russia to eliminate the violent jihadis. With the resignation of General Mike Flynn, the demotion of Steve Bannon, the elevation of Jared Kushner, and others to the National Security Council, and then the launch of 59 Tomahawk missiles targeting a Syrian military base, and the subsequent dropping of a mother of all bombs on Afghanistan, it's feeling like Hillary Clinton won the election, at least with regard to foreign policy. What do you think is going on?
1: Well, it is hard to be certain of what's going on, but what I will say is that there has been a successful coup, in my opinion, against the people who originally backed Trump. Again, Flynn, uh, Bannon, and a lot of people in the United States, you know, the Ron Paulians, the libertarians, the pacifists, all the people who wanted basically an end to the imperial megalomania that Hillary promised us. And what happened is that I think they broke the man once he got to the White House. I mean, he uh, he wanted to drain the swamp and uh, the swamp to drown him instead completely. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's finished. I mean, I even had uh, an article that I wrote, I think, in February, where I just said basically, uh, that was after the firing of Flynn, when I said it's finished. I mean, uh, that's it. Uh, nothing is going to happen. And uh, I can actually prove it to you very easily. There's a consistency in uh, those actions. Um, when he wanted to go after ISIS or Daesh, if you want to call them that, or, you know, the Islamic states, Al-Qaeda, it was absolutely clear, I think, for everybody that there would be no uh, American boots on the ground, not in a sufficient amount to actually uh, engage in an offensive ground operation. What does that leave? That leaves only two countries that can actually fight. The U.S. could do something from the air, but certainly not, or from the sea, but not from the ground. Underground, it's Syria and it's Iran. Those are the two players, and Hezbollah. Those are the three players who have sufficient amount of firepower, boots on the ground. Well, with that missile strike, Trump made that impossible. So now that he made that impossible, since there's not going to be boots on the ground that will fight. Uh, the Islamic, the, the Wahhabi crazes, what I call the Wahhabi crazes, there's not going to be boots on the ground doing it. Nobody else will do it, which means that his central campaign promise of obliterating al-Qaeda or Daesh, whatever you want to call them, will simply never happen. That's it. Well, well why do you
0: say that his missile attack automatically means that there won't be any boots on the ground?
1: Uh, because, well, there will never be American boots on the ground. I mean, I just don't think that's uh, something that anybody seriously thinks is going to happen, because it's going to take more. There are several thousand Americans right now on the ground there, but that's not what we're talking about. If you want to control land, and that's true for Korea too, by the way, you have to have boots on the ground. From the air, you can do a certain amount of damage, and even that is limited. So what happens then is that the only boots possible would be the Syrians and the Iranians. But they will not work with Trump after what he did uh, during that attack and all the rhetoric on top of that. I mean, Iran is blacklisted by Trump as being, you know, the prime sponsor of terrorism on the planet. Even Flynn actually said that. And uh, Syria is, again, you know, being accused of of engaging in chemical attacks. To me, the, the purpose of that attack was precisely to make any collaboration between the United States and Russia impossible. And I think that's what we are right now. I mean, it's, I just don't see uh, unless, you know, a miraculous another 180 degree turn happens, which I don't believe will. Uh, right now, with the current mindsets and the policies of the Trump administration, there is no collaboration with Syria, Iran, or Russia or Hezbollah. Those four being the ones that are needed to crush Al Qaeda or ISIS on the ground.
0: In your article, A Multi-Level Analysis of the U.S. Cruise Missile Attack on Syria and its Consequences, you quote the Russians as having said that only 23 cruise missiles hit the airfield. The others are unaccounted for. You go on to say that what matters is that the Russians have basically leaked the information that they are capable of turning cruise missiles around. What indicates that Russia has this capability?
1: Well, they never admitted it as such. Their official description of, of their electronic warfare kit says that that kind of capabilities would be in the future. Um, however, you have to explain the disappearance of these missiles. I mean, I think the first fact that's... Um, both Russia and the US agree that there were 59 missiles. I think we can take that to the bank. Uh, how many actually hit um, the airfield is best proven by looking that the airfield was working basically on the next day with footage on the ground by the way, confirming that the runways were on hit, that there were a limited amount of, of hits. Uh, the airport was functioning. Russian journalists, by the way, were driving around the airport with no chemical gear, um, chemical protection gear, which means there was no sarin gas there, which, by the way, indicates to me the Americans knew that because if there had been sarin gas there, I don't think they would have used cruise missiles to hit it. Uh, so what are the other options? Those missiles being shut down, I doubt it, uh, because those missiles can follow very low tracks, Uh, which are designed to avoid um, the most effective air defense system in Syria, and those are the Russian ones, which are, by the way, tasked with only defending Russian positions. They're not tasked with defending Syrian positions. So it would have been fairly easy for the United States to just uh, fly these cruise missiles in on tracks, staying away from the Russian positions. Uh, I think the Russians detected that launch. They have all sorts of means to detect that. And I've seen one map where they say that the missiles basically came from the south, to, flew to Israel and then turned north to hit the objectives in, in Syria. In that case, the Russian missiles would not even have had the range to hit them. And the Syrians don't have enough, I think, air defenses, and most of them are old to destroy that amount of missiles. So, you know, when the only possible explanation left are two, either Trump deliberately pushed a number of them in the sea to say that he hit with many, but to make sure there's not enough damage. I don't think that's an that's I don't think that's a real possibility. It's a theoretical one, but I don't see anybody wasting that amount of money in doing that, or electronic warfare kit by the Russians. And the Russians have released one. The company that actually builds most of the central components of the Russian electronic warfare kit called Kert actually show. there is a drawing that I show in my article where you could clearly see a cruise missile turning around and making a, a sharp turning, weaving away from... Um, its intended targets. So the Russians are saying they're developing these possibilities. My guess is that they already have them and that they have used them.
0: Well, now, how is all of this going to affect U.S.-Russia relations? You've mentioned that uh, Trump's cruise missile attack on Syria has ended any possible collaboration with Iran, with, uh, and also with Russia, you're saying?
1: I think the Russians, it's not that the Russians will be sitting and pouting and refusing to work with, with Trump. I think they would be available to do things with the Americans. But I think the mindset uh, of the people surrounding Trump right now is a such a degree of Russophobia that no substantial uh, political, on, uh, particularly on the sensitive issues of uh, North Korea, Syria and the Ukraine, I don't see a collaboration happening. Um, if anything the reaction russia uh, first of all you wanted to show strength but in the russian mindset that actually shows weakness mm-hmm. if you have to make shows of force it means you're insecure and you're trying to to frighten somebody so it has the exact opposite effect same thing for his bullying of north korea if anything that's interpreted as a sign of weakness and secondly i mentioned there's um there's a word in russian it's nedogovorasposobny which means unable to um, literally not agreement capable. And that's what they had said several times about the Obama administration. I'm afraid that they're going to pretty much come to the same conclusion that uh, the Trump administration is not agreement capable. And therefore, they're going to, you know, if Trump offers us something that's in their interest, yeah, they'll, they'll take it and, and, and they'll work together. But do I see, compared to the prospects, what we could have reasonably hoped for? It's 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 nothing compared to the potential. The the clear the biggest one for me is the meaningful destruction of, of ISIS on the ground. I think that Russians and Americans together could have achieved that result, and that unfortunately is not going to happen. I do not see a collaboration on the Ukraine either. By the way, so these are the two main ones where I, where there was hope of working together. And now it's it's finished.
0: Right, and so uh, obviously the Trump administration at this point is not going to go, it doesn't look like they're going to go after ISIS or any of the jihadis at all, right?
1: They'll probably go after them symbolically by, you know, um, look at the time it took, they have, still haven't taken Mosul, by the way. Okay, so mm. you're talking about a, a superpower that's not capable of taking one city in Iraq. What are they going to do? They're going to probably have airstrikes, probably have more cruise missile strikes, maybe some of them will direct to be at ISIS, but it's all going to be for show. The real thing is ISIS stays because Israel wants it to stay, and the Trump administration is not serious about getting rid of them.
0: How far do you think Russia will go in helping the Assad government in Syria?
1: I should say short of an overt war with the United States, they will go as far as needed. Um, and even the overt war depends on what would trigger it, uh, because there's a domino effect here that the Russians understand very well. Uh, First of all, Syria is a crucial ally for Russia, but Syria is also a symbol. The Russians absolutely are insisting that they want a respect for international law. and uh, Giving up Syria to the United States is basically a wholesale abandonment of international law. That cannot be allowed. I don't think China wants that either. These two countries are working on a multipolar world. And if Syria is handed over to Daesh or al-Qaeda, that's the end of international law. It's completely illegal. Furthermore, there's a domino effect. Iran would be next. I don't think anybody doubts that. Also, make no mistake, if if Assad is overthrown and uh, the Wahhabi crazies make it to power in Damascus, the next thing they will do is turn on Lebanon. There have been already combats between uh, al-Qaeda types and Hezbollah in Lebanon, and uh, there is a reason why Hezbollah has sacrificed so many fighters in that war, because they know they're next. So I don't, I don't think that the Russians or the Lebanese or the Iranians see that they have the option of letting uh, al-Qaeda come to power in Damascus and just do nothing about it. So I think they would do pretty much whatever it takes and whatever is in their power to not allow that to happen. I think that's how important it is for them.
0: Uh, that is absent going to war against the U.S. What do you think the possibilities are of a confrontation militarily between the U.S. and Russia?
1: Well, I should qualify what I said. Uh, I don't think they would do something that that could justify and trigger a U.S. attack on Russia. However, if Russian soldiers or forces are attacked, I also am convinced that they will fire back. And that tells you how how close we are to a war right now. I think we're in a much worse situation than during the Cuban Missile Crisis, because um, I think the people in power in the United States are playing a game of nuclear chicken, and they think they can win. The problem is on the Russian side. uh, The Russians have retreated as far as they possibly could, which is literally to their borders. Um, They're not retreating any further. They can't. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if they are pushed, they will fight a war with the United States. Uh, as early as 2015, I wrote an article saying Russia is preparing for war, and ever since, Russia has been proactively preparing for a major war with the United States. I mean, there have been exercises on a military level. The banking system has exercised how to survive, you know, operate in war conditions. Uh, the civil defense has been working on it. Uh, there's a paradox here: the Russians are afraid of war because they know what it is, but they're also ready for it. Uh, And if they're pushed to that extremity, they will fight and fight back. Um, There's no doubt in my mind whatsoever. What they will not do is escalate in a way which would force the United States to respond. That they're not going to do. Say, sink an aircraft carrier or, you know, even uh, uh, attack American positions in retaliation. I mean, we've seen that with the Turks shooting down the Russian aircraft. Um, The Russians will go as far as they... War for them actually shooting is an absolute last resort. They will never take that as the first measure, which is what the Americans are doing right now. That's the first thing they turn to.
0: I'm speaking with author and analyst The Saker. Today's show, Trump and Putin, setting the record straight. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What is the geopolitical strategy behind the saber-rattling against Russia?
1: I don't think there is a geopolitical strategy other than a combination of two things. Fundamentally, the neocons hate Russia uh, as a culture, as a nation, uh, the Orthodox faith, everything Russia has represented in, its, in her history. The neocons have a profound ideological hatred for it. The second thing is that Russia, uh, and I think China is in the same category, both these countries have renounced the concept of empire. They paid too dearly a price for it. And what they're pushing for is a multinational, uh, um, a multipolar world order, and that is something that's not acceptable to somebody who wants the United States to be an empire. Uh, that was the big hope with Trump; that the people backing him wanted to sacrifice the empire and save the United States, whereas the people backing Hillary where people were people who are willing to sacrifice the United States and the American people for the sake of the global empire. And um, I think that reading was essentially correct uh, before he made his, you know, 108 degrees, that, that these were the forces who are battling inside the U.S. elites. And the people who took power now uh, basically are hardcore neocon imperialists. Uh, they have no use for anything but, uh, you know, world hegemony for the United States.
0: So could you talk a little bit about the neocons? Now, obviously, it looks like the neocons have been successful at taking over the Trump administration. Um, Yes. So it looks like it's going to be a continuation of business as usual. What about the neocon worldview and uh, their philosophy, their
1: ideas? What are we dealing with? I think we're dealing with a select group of people who perceive themselves as the chosen people who believe that the naturally have a right to rule the entire planet, uh, and I think they use the United States for that purpose. I don't think of them at all as American patriots. I think American patriots have no need for the kind of empire that the, the neocons uh, you know, want to build. I think they're motivated basically by ideology. These are not pragmatic people at all. Uh, these are hardcore ideologists. A lot of them, uh, former Trotskyites, either you know because their parents were, or they themselves, actually, in certain cases, were. You can find all that on the on the on Google if you look Trotsky and and neocons. And I think they're people who basically want to run the entire planet. That's that's their highest value. I think I don't think they are, you know, idealists in a positive sense of the word. If anything, they're idealists. They're megalomaniacs. Yeah, racist megalomaniacs is how I would characterize them. And they're clever. And they are very, um, very motivated. That's why they're so powerful. And that's the case of many minorities. You know, usually we are taught that democracy is a system which should protect uh, minorities against majorities. But in reality, that's the biggest failure of democracy. Because what happens is that minorities end up oppressing majorities, because minorities are not more clever or you know more intelligent, but they are far more driven. They're usually they're single-topic voters and actors. And their agenda is very narrow, and they're driven by it very powerfully, whereas the majority are usually much more diverse, and they look at things on a broad range of issues. They don't identify themselves by a single political agenda. I think the neocons do.
0: That's a very, uh, that's a very good and profound analysis. Now, I've noticed uh, that's absolutely right. You see it everywhere, uh, where it's the minority populations that are being catered to as, yes, uh, as victims or something.
1: Yes, exactly. And that also goes externally. You notice that the U.S. empire always supports the minority against the majority in pretty much any place. And you know why? It's very simple, because the minority will then become dependent. The majority does not need an external actor to be the majority and the strongest uh, you know, player on the block. The minority does. So helping minorities looks politically good. It makes you look sensitive you know, and, 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 and being the good person. And, but at the same time, it's a very cynical and very primitive uh, political ploy, really both internally and externally.
0: Yes, and that's very interesting that you mentioned that democracy leads to that. Um, that's true now that you mention it and I think about it. that That's right.
1: In a system where um, participation is voluntary, for instance, you're always going to have the minorities who are highly driven. Um, they're going to have a disproportionate amount of votes, for instance. The same thing, people who identify themselves as belonging to a group, say Group A, will take decisions in business which are going to be very different from the majority people. The majority people deal with other majority people. The minority people, every time they look at a specific, say, business partner or somebody they would promote, they think, is he with Group A or is he not with Group A? Does he promote my interest or not? So by being highly parochial and extremely single-topic motivated, they achieve a totally disproportionate success ratio in a system that does nothing to impede them and actually proactively protects them.
0: I very much appreciated your analysis in your piece, how the Ukrainian crisis will eventually bring down the Anglo-Zionist empire. Um, That's included in your book, The Essential Saker, from the Trenches of the Emerging Multipolar World. You write that, quote, what the Anglo-Zionists are openly and publicly defending in the Ukraine is the polar opposite of what they are supposed to stand for. Absolutely. That that is an extremely dangerous thing to do for any regime, and the Anglo-Zionist empire is no exception to that rule. What is actually taking place in the Ukraine as opposed to what is being claimed?
1: Well, I think there's two ways of looking at it. We can go into a great deal of detail, but I think I would suggest we take the simple approach, and it's straightforward. You have a coup uh, which was organized by the betrayal of the president in power. By the way, the president in power was a corrupt individual. He wasn't pro-Russian, but he was not a rabid Russophobe, so that's why he's accused of being pro-Russian. A coup took place, even though the Europeans gave security guarantees. I mean, they promised that the deal would be made between the opposition and President Yanukovych. The coup brought into power uh, a group of people who came to power by violence, and a good chunk of which were, at best, rabid nationalists, at worst, outright Nazis, including, I would say, a whole bunch of anti-Jewish-feeling uh, people, who, and somehow in the West, which tends to... You know, in the West, we're always told that we have to have special sensitivity and never allow anti-Semitic discourse, etc. When it's in the Ukraine, it seems to be perfectly kosher to be a, a Jew-hating nationalist. And the you know the neocons, the Americans, and the Europeans—they all put up with that, no problem. The second thing that happened is, even after the coup, there was there was no necessity for a civil war. Um, I can give an evidence of that. Something very interesting—if people have time to check it—look at the flags that people were waving in the eastern Ukraine, the Donbas, and even in Crimea. They were protesting. They didn't like the coup. They didn't like the, the plans to um, make the Russian language unofficial, but, and they wanted some degree of uh, decentralization. But look at the flags. They were mostly Ukrainian flags. But after the Turcinov, the acting president at that time, um, declared basically war and said the military to crush uh the people in the east, then that changed and turned into a full scale civil war. So the values that were betrayed here is democracy, is uh self determination for the people, is standing up to national socialists and, you know, rejecting Nazi inspired ideologies. All these things that the West for years have been, you know, claiming to uphold and even embody, they're all betrayed. All betrayed. And I won't even go into the false flags, all the hypocrisy of saying that the Russians have forces in uh the eastern ukraine when the west has forces in the in the rest of the ukraine and they speak of russian volunteers in the dunbas but they don't speak about the polish german american italian canadian and other volunteers in the ukraine i mean the ukraine has been a fantastic exercise in double think i think it's is that the word that orwell used in english i don't i haven't read it in english but it's, you know it's double thought or double think yes. and then complete hypocrisy absolutely a wholesale abandonment of all the lofty principles That's the West stood for during the Cold War. So in your article, how the Ukrainian
0: crisis will eventually bring down the Anglo-Zionist empire, are you saying that the hypocrisy of what they're saying they're doing as opposed to what they're really doing is becoming so obvious that people are just going to see
1: through it? Yes, I think so. And that's something I observed in the Soviet Union, actually, during the communist years. At the end, uh, there may be a hard core of idealists, but mostly everybody knew that the system was rotten to the core, and nobody really stepped forward to uh, defend it, be it in 1991 or, uh, or after that. People were basically, they couldn't do anything, they couldn't vote them out of office, but they were making jokes about the... The communist regime, and they were disgusted with it. It was just a general sense. Everybody knew that it's a, it's a complete hypocrisy. And I see that happening in, in the United States too. I mean, I've been, I've been living in this country for now a total of, let me see, uh, 15, about almost 20 years. And I see how this has changed. And uh, it's interesting, those who do still believe in American values actually are usually pretty sympathetic to Putin. And often I hear this guy actually stand for American values. I don't think anybody seriously believes that the the power that be in Washington, D.C., stand for the American values and the the values on which the republic was was built. I mean, free speech, we know it's a joke. International law, we know it's a joke. Human rights, we know it's a joke. Torture, we know it's a joke. I mean, can you name me a single value that officially the United States stands for that people still take seriously? Not for themselves, they do, but that they believe that those in power actually uphold and struggle for. I can't name a single one.
0: Exactly. You mentioned the usual reasons given for the dissolution of the Soviet Union, including the war in Afghanistan, the drop in oil prices, etc. But you have your own view on why the Soviet system fell apart. What do you think was the most important factor? And you've already started talking about that.
1: Well, the single most important factor was, I think, a decision by party elites to break up the country into 15 little parts that they would still continue running, but separately. So the Soviet Union never fell apart. It was broken apart. Um, so, but I would say right on par with the importance of that action of, of the party elites is a general sense of total disgust with the ideology and the hypocrisy of the system. Uh, the war in Afghanistan, believe me, the Russians could have stayed there another 10 or 20 years, and that was not, that, the war never brought down um, the Soviet Union, most definitely not. Neither did the Polish Solidarnosc strikes in Poland, or, you know, uh, Reagan's arm race and the fall in, in uh, oil prices did contribute, it did contribute to weakening the Soviet economy. But just like today, we have uh, sanctions against Russia. They do have an effect, but much worse is the actual policies of the economic ministries within the government, which are, I think, much more responsible for the crisis in Russia. The same thing happened in the Soviet Union. Yes, it did contribute to, but the prime cause of the circumstances which led to a breakup of the Soviet Union was the incompetence of the party who was running it.
0: And then also the fact that, what, Russian citizens no longer believed in it. You know, I actually... Went to the Soviet Union once, and I think it was in, I think it was in the winter of eighty-one, eighty-two. It could have been eighty-eighty-one, but anyway, it was right after Brezhnev had died, and there was an interim guy in there. I think his name was Andropov or something. Andropov, yeah, Andropov. Yeah. Yes. Um, anyway, a, a friend of mine's son had graduated from the Pushkin Institute, and so we went over there. And it was quite unusual. I don't think many Americans went there. And so because we because our friend had graduated from this uh, from this Pushkin Institute, we got to socialize with a lot of Russians, a lot of young people and their parents. And it was very clear they made fun of the government.
1: They didn't believe oh, yeah. in any of it. And let me add one thing. Actually, there were communists in Russia who did not give up their belief in the communist values and ideals. But even they could only despise the ruling elites and nomenclatura that ran the Soviet Union, which is similar, like, here today. People who are disgusted with the Anglo-Zionist empire and the people in D.C. did not give up American values as, as embodied, you know, and, and, uh, and the amendments in the Constitution and the founding father writings. I mean, this is different things. People say that communism was defeated in the Soviet Union. No. The Soviet system was truly hated by everybody. But I think a lot of people still kept in their hearts certain um, values that communism, you know, was dear to them. They just didn't see it at all as represented by the regime. Right,
0: exactly. I'm speaking with author and analyst The Saker. Today's show, Trump and Putin, setting the record straight. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What are more parallels between the crumbling Soviet Union and the United States today? You list 20 additional similarities. They're quite striking. What are some of them?
1: Well, uh, my list begins with a bloated military budget, which results paradoxically in an ineffective military. And I would say that U.S. military today is very ineffective. And so was the Soviet one, by the way. It was huge. But it was an effective second huge and ineffective intelligence community, a crumbling public infrastructure, a world record of per capita ratio of incarcerated people, Uh, that's the United States has the highest rate right now, followed by Russia still, by the way, so that problem is not over there, a propaganda machine, internal dissident movements, which we definitely have in the United States, a systematic use of violence against citizens, we have that here, uh, tensions between the central authority and the local, the regions or the states, uh, an industry that exports energy and weapons, um, a population that's fearful of being spied on, um, a systematic you know dissidents and people who disagree are described as traitors or spies. Uh, we see that very clearly with uh, the Snowden case. Um, a paranoia of external enemies. Uh, overreach over the entire planet. I mean, here I am at 13. I can continue down the list if you want. Yeah, why do Okay, an awareness that the entire planet hates you. That was very much true in the Soviet Union. People knew that they were hated. They were absolutely aware of that. A subservient press corps of prostitutes who never dared to ask the real questions. A sky-high rate of substance abuse. A young generation who believes in nothing at all. An educational system in free fall, and I would argue the Soviet one was better than the current American one, a disgust with politics and politics in general, and a massive prevailing amount of corruptions at all levels of power. You'll see exactly all of those in both cases.
0: In 2014, you wrote that, quote, The truth is the most powerful empire buster ever invented. It brought down the USSR, and it will bring down the Anglo Zionists too. It is just a matter of time now, and we've talked about like some of the striking parallels uh, between the former Soviet Union and present-day U.S. How do you think the dissolution of the empire will come about, or what it will look like? Do you have any uh, Do you have any vision of this, or any opinion on it?
1: You know, it's funny that you would ask that. Um, I was I mention that very often in my writings. I never actually sat down and had the time to offer a possible scenario. I would just say that I think that it's going to happen by an external shock first. Um, The United States being protected by by sea and by uh, a lot of military power, that's the two things that kept the U.S. going, is first of all, geography, and secondly, uh, you could always impose the dollar upon everybody. Now, people speak of a gold-backed currency, or fiat. I call it aircraft carrier-backed currency, the currency that you can impose upon everybody who doesn't want to be bombed by. And that worked. Those two things are coming to an end. First of all, the United States military is in bad shape and is not frightening the opponents of the U.S. empire today. It's one thing to, to go after Gaddafi or to overthrow Saddam Hussein. It's a totally different proposition to go after Iran. And I won't even go to China or Russia. And secondly, um, the world is becoming smaller, and um, there are ways now. Uh, For instance, um, say if a war had broken uh, out during the Cuban Missile Crisis, a couple of Soviet nukes could have reached the United States and and done damage, and once they were removed, the United States, uh, at least the mainland, the homeland, was uh, out of danger. Now the Russians can use conventional, I repeat, conventional systems that can basically inflict huge damage on the United States. So that's a big difference. Um, in the past, only the other side could have had war you know, on your doorstep. Now the United States are actually taking a risk for the U.S. territory. So I think eventually it's gonna end up with a shock. Something might go very wrong. Um, for instance, Korea, if God forbid, uh, Trump actually decides to use military power against North Korea, I think the consequences of that could be so severe that they would bring up uh, either a combination of of local uprisings or what I think is more likely a breakup of the country into states who want to go different ways and don't don't need the empire for themselves at all.
0: And you've also mentioned Iran. Now, Russia is a close ally, I believe, of Iran. You've written that, quote, the West fully controlled by Zionist interests, is hell-bent on a confrontation with Syria and Iran. Mm-hmm. This confrontation is already happening in Syria. Obviously, and you write about it, Obama had to drop this escalation of the Syrian thing. I remember that the British Parliament mm-hmm. wouldn't support it. Um, I I can't remember all the details. And then, of course, the United States struck the nuclear deal with Iran. How do you think Iran figures in this? You've said that if if Syria fell, then the next target, of course, would be Iran. They're just in a stalemate now, aren't they?
1: Pretty much. First of all, I would say that Iran is a close ally uh, with Russia, but not because there's some kind of strong... Uh, mutual love, but because they basically understand, both sides understand that they need each other pretty badly. Um, for Russia, first and foremost, Iran is the counterweight to Al Qaeda in the region. That is the only country that can keep um, all this uh, Daesh, ISIS thing down, or even help maybe in the future eliminate it. Um, so Russia really needs Iran because next is going to be the the Caucasus. And the Iranians realize that they're they're big, they're powerful, but they can't be completely alone either. They need Russia and China to to back them. So it's it's a uh, it's a coalition that is never you know formalized this way, but essentially going from the little guy, Hezbollah depends on Syria, which depends on Iran, which depends on Russia, and Russia and China are in a symbiosis. That's how I would sort of present that the, the structure of that informal alliance, and the reason why Iran is in the is in the crosshairs of the neocon for all these years. It has nothing to do with nuclear weapons, actually. Iran uh, probably never had much of a nuclear weapon programs and uh, we know that it hasn't had one since. I'm absolutely convinced of that. The real problem is that for Israel, Iran is becoming the local, Israel used to be the local superpower in the Middle East. Iran is not only a competitor but it's a viable one, one that's not afraid and one that's rich in your face. They denounce Israel and they denounce the the Anglo-Zionist empire in very direct terms. So there's a risk of shift of power both for the Israelis and the Saudis too. The Saudis one that's the other big they're maybe not as as powerful militarily as Israel but they're very rich and they want they want to be the other you know power that is going to control the the Middle East. So what we have right now is a paradoxical alliance of the Saudi Wahhabis and the Israeli Zionists uh, together working, and of course, protected by the United States, all basically going after Iran, because the end goal is Iran. Syria by itself, and even Lebanon by itself, is not worth that kind of effort. Iran is. But I don't think they have a chance uh, at all to uh to prevail against Iran, and I think they come to that realization the closer they come to a scenario of war, the more they run through the scenarios, the more they realize no it's not just not going to happen. A war against Iran would look very much like the war that Israel imposed on Lebanon in two thousand and six. Um, it would be a great deal of destruction in Iran, like the Israelis inflicted a great deal of destruction in southern Lebanon and general Lebanon. And then nothing. They wouldn't be able to hold ground for very long. They can't invade that country. It's way too big. Uh, the people are way too strong. I mean, this is not a country that's easily... The United States nowadays is in no condition to suppress it militarily. And that is the big uh, frustration for them. They, they wish they could, but they can't.
0: You've done an awful lot of research on Russia, and you're you're quite familiar with the situation there you've written a lot of about different historical periods in Russia. Now, I was reading some sort of a financial commentator saying about that demonstration in moscow it says quote while president putin is expected to be re-elected the kremlin was reportedly shaken by last month's anti-corruption protests in moscow led by alexei navalny, guess, yeah, yeah. navalny which represented mm-hmm. the largest anti-government demonstrations in five years well from what you know of <laughs> russia uh Is there really any viable uh, protests or power against Putin and the government? Putin's quite popular, isn't he?
1: Yes, of course. That quote is utter nonsense. This person has no idea what he's talking about. Uh, (laughs) Putin is as popular at a a solid 80% plus. What is true is that the government of Medvedev is less popular, and those in charge of economics are even less popular. And I would say that I agree with that sentiment. I think that what Russia does in the foreign policy is very good. Internal policies are not that satisfactory, and there is a big problem. And I'll explain in a minute where it comes from. But just to address the issue of of the demonstration size, have there been any demonstrations of any notice in the past five years? That's why this one looked big. The reality is is that Russia has a multi-party uh, political system where pro-western parties can run. They can't even make it into the Duma. They fail the 5% barrier. I mean, the support for the West and for people like Navalny in Russia must be somewhere in the 2 to 3% range. However, in Moscow it's going to be substantially higher in bigger cities, and a lot of the Russian elites don't like and even hate Putin very much. And that's where the real opposition to him is. There's two oppositions, in, Ru- well, three oppositions in Russia. The first one is this fake opposition pretty much financed by the CIA, like Navalny and the rest of them, which are a joke. They're, they're not any more representative of the Russian people today than the dissidents were during the Soviet era. That's a Western-created myth. The second opposition is the, a good part of the elites, which Putin prevents from running the country like they did in the 1990s. Now, there is a very powerful threat and enemy to uh, to Putin. Um, they have their people all over the place, even in the Russian government today There still uh, are these they are the the IMF type, the World Bank type, the basically the globalists. And they have a lot of money and they're supported by the elites. Now that is an informal but very dangerous and formidable opposition to Putin. Um, but it's not one that, you know, has a party that goes to parliament because they know they're never going to win anything. And then there's a third opposition, which is the system opposition, which are the parties which are formally not uh, supporting uh, the Putin, um, you know, presidency. Uh, have differences with him, but generally pretty much agree with him. It's pretty much what you have in the parliament today in the Duma. You have the 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 party of Zhirinovsky, the anti-communist nationalist, that would qualify them. There is a communist party, and there is a party called um, Just Russia. So you know. They are not very active. They're pretty much rubber stamped Duma right now. So, in Russia, you know, the um, real—how should I say—the the the front lines of the battle for power are not in the Duma and they're not in the demonstration in the streets. They're behind the scenes. Absolutely, the kind of fight that took place that replaced the Bannon and um, Flint people in the United States. That kind of thing is, is what has been happening since pretty much 1993-95 in Russia. The behind-the-scenes struggle of people who are close to power. That's where the real fight is.
0: I'm speaking with author and analyst The Saker. Today's show, Trump and Putin, setting the record straight. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. That's very interesting. That was my impression as well. That it's the wealthy elites in Russia that would be the real, um, the real danger to Putin's yes. rule,
1: right? Absolutely, yes. And they're they're an extreme danger for him. Um, last year, I think one observer said that he thinks I have my own little label for these people. I call the people who are supporting Putin the Eurasian Sovereignists. They want Russia to be sovereign and sort of become a Eurasian power. And I call the pro-Western people the Atlantic integrationists. These are people who want to integrate Russia into the Atlanticist Western security structures. Well, one of the best observers, his name is Mikhail Khazin, said last year that he thinks that just by 2016, they're about 50-50 percent in power. That tells us after 16 years of Putin in power, he basically got at a 50-50 percent. That's quite amazing, uh, Consider that he has 80 percent of the people in the country. So you have a president who's supported by probably about half of the, of the, the powerful people in the country only, about 80 percent of the people generally in the country, and who's still at extreme risk of a, uh, of a coup or an operation against him, or just sabotage, which is probably the worst of all. Because they can't really remove him, he's too popular, but they're constantly sabotaging everything he tries to make, constantly. It's a well-known thing in Russia. He signs, you know, a decree, and it's never implemented. It's just ignored. And contrary to what the Western press says, he's not a dictator. He can't do like Stalin and just send, you know, cops to put these guys under arrest and shoot him in a basement. He has to follow the law. So, you know, for, for sabotage or bad work, you can fire somebody. But if that person is well-protected, it we'll would be rehired. You can't just kidnap and shoot a person like that. You can try to find some kind of dirt to get on that person and then go after him. That's what happened with Khodorkovsky, where they accused him of tax evasion. But it's really hard for him, that struggle. Uh, he's, he's very isolated um, on, on the top there, and he's taking a, every day. It's a huge risk for him. You're talking about
0: uh, Putin being very isolated.
1: Yes. Oh, wow, uh, well, now it's I would say it's about I would roughly say fifty percent who work of the people in government in the Kremlin, and then the banks and the power structures are opposed to him. He has to deal with these people. you know
0: it's interesting that Vladimir Putin has been so relentlessly demonized in the West mm-hmm. in the press and by the government and by Congress, and everybody's piling on uh, calling him names the attack on him. And yet I, I recently read an article in the Nexus magazine, I wish I had it in front of me, Uh, written by someone who actually talked to uh, certain people in the American government who had direct dealings with Putin at various times in the past. And they were all very uh, sort of off the record, but very impressed with him, and talked about him being able to keep his word and that he was ethical and that you couldn't bribe him, etc. It was the polar opposite of the demonization. Mm -hmm. What is your impression of of Putin as a person? Do you have any sense of it?
1: I have a developing one. I'll surprise you. Uh, When he was appointed first uh, by people around Yeltsin, I was very anti-Putin. And if you look at my early articles, I began my blog in 2007, I was extremely suspicious of the man. I just... the looks, the oversized suit he had, I don't know, he just... I really was deeply suspicious that anything good could come out of a guy like that, and I completely changed my mind just by observing what he actually does. I mean, I think of him as one of the greatest Russian leaders ever in Russian history. Now, he achieved many number of miracles, and he's dealing with an extraordinarily difficult situation. My reading of him is first of all, he's an extremely skilled and um, intelligent man. Um, they usually say he was ex-KGB, but that overlooks something very important. And the Soviet Union, the KGB, was a huge organization which had a lot of, you know, different uh, subgroups. And he was part of the Foreign Intelligence Service, the equivalent of the CIA, roughly. These are very different people. They were highly educated, knew the West superbly. And uh, they had nothing to do with political repression, dissent, you know, the gulag, all that stuff. He's not, you know, a torturer who stopped torturing people and became uh, president. He's actually a, a, an intelligence specialist. Um, He clearly also is a a person from immense personal courage. He showed us several times. I think he's an officer. And by that I mean uh, somebody who's deeply patriotic, and I think highly principled, yes. I can't prove it. Uh, I don't have evidence that he is not corruptible. I don't think he needs money, because it's just not worth it. You can make a lot more money in Russia and be safe than sitting where he sits in the Kremlin, which is a very dangerous place to be. Traditionally to be the Russian head of state is a dangerous place. And I think uh, everything I read on his actions, I am convinced that he's trying to do the best for the Russian people. And that's why I think the Russian people read it correctly, too, and support him against everything, including sanctions and real economic difficulties, at still 80% rate. These are not fake uh, polls. The Western paid polls, and even the anti-Putin people actually ac- accept that with disgust. They see the Russians are stupid, and, and, you know, they call them "buddler," which means like, like trash, because they elect that guy. But they accept that, actually, he is really that popular.
0: Yes, he strikes me as well as a very remarkable person. And I hadn't really thought At length about what you're saying about how dangerous his position is but I can see what you're saying and that makes what he says and what he does even more remarkable he really is very strong
1: he is amazingly strong amazingly courageous and he is very much at risk every day Um, political and even I would say physical risk although the physical risk he he dealt with first and very effectively he has basically put the right people now in command of the key power ministries and the key um, units that could be, you know, that could attempt some kind of violent action against him. So that's not happening. I don't think the U.S. can overthrow him. The, the Russian security service is way too too capable, and they've easily defeated at last time when there was this white revolution, and, the, you know, the, um, the alleged the elections were stolen. So that's not going to happen either. So the real danger for Putin is very much that fifth column, inside the power structures, which go as high as uh, members of the government's ministers.
0: You talked about Putin being uh, very effective and very popular with his uh, foreign policy, but Mm -hmm. that there were big problems in Russia domestically with economic policy. What were you referring to?
1: Uh, The fact that Russia is still heavily invested in the United States, corruption is still rampant, uh, interest rates are too high, the ruble is floating, I mean, it's all, these are basically Washington consensus policies, and not at all the kind of, um, kind of policies that would, Russia would need right now. The blessing for Russia has been the, uh, the economic sanctions, which forced Russia to diversify, not to rely only on quick buck made on energy sales but that's not enough. I mean, what Russia needs is to f- use that opportunity to diversify the economy, to invest in, into really making small businesses profitable and support the entrepreneur. It's not at all what's happening right now. The system is corrupt. The courts are still corrupt, by the way. Um, there is a lot of internal problems, unfortunately. And Putin just, he's trying. I mean, I, I, he, on a regular basis, he intervenes personally, but he can't run around the entire country fixing the wrongs of everybody else who doesn't want to do it. And that's what he's doing, unfortunately.
0: Exactly. So the Russian Federation is still very much economically under the thumb of the West, but they're looking to move out of the of the Western financial system, right? Are there are there active moves right now to set up their own, uh, what do they call it, their own payment system, etc.?
1: Yes, but only when forced to. I mean, you're right, for instance, the payment system they've been setting up. Um, there have been other efforts uh, because of the sanctions. But again, uh when you say they, I would say about half of them would like to, and half of them would not like to. Uh, there are a lot of Washington consensus, IMF, WTO types in Russia who are still pushing you know, the kind of policies that are imposed upon every other country in the West. And uh, And a lot of people are saying it's a disaster, including a lot of Putin supporters. A lot of Putin supporters are at the same time very, very critical of the uh, Medvedev government and the uh, economic policies of of the government.
0: I've always found it uh, amazing. I've never understood why the Russians keep so many of the Russians keep falling for the Western financial con. I mean, look what they've done to Russia.
1: But the people who do that don't care about Russia. They care about their wallet. They, they want to rob Russia. These are the same people. You have to understand one thing is crucial. Putin did not appear at the end of the Soviet Union, he appeared at the end of the democracy of the Yeltsin regime. That's uh, almost a decade of vicious, total plundering of Russia.
0: That's right.
1: And uh, he didn't, you know, there was no general purge when he came to power there was a somewhat of a purge of the worst oligarchs. So Berezovsky emigrated, Khodorkovsky was put in jail, uh, some of them went to Israel, some of them, you know, basically decided to keep quiet and accepted his deal of, I won't touch you if you stop meddling in politics, which was the best he could do with the instruments he had at the time. And these people are still there, and their children are still there, and, you know, it's an entire class. It's a class issue in a Marxist uh, sense of the, of the term. These people are defending their class interests, which are far more important to them, than Russia or, you know, anything of of international law or, or the people. They don't care about these people. These are people who are used to sucking the blood like a parasite of wherever they are. And in Russia, we had a lot of them. You know, it's
0: interesting because I keep meeting people socially who keep trying to claim that Putin was a Russian oligarch. He wasn't, was he?
1: (laughs) No, no, he wasn't. That is really laughable. That's kind of even silly because if you are the president of Russia, you don't need to be an oligarch. I mean, essentially, he has limitless means, if you want, as 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 a president. And even after he retires, I can assure you that he has no financial needs of any kind. Um, this is especially silly to think that somebody in his position what would be more interesting is does he have a bunch of people around him who benefit from being around him and are oligarchs and I would say yes to some degree that is more true Uh, but there's a difference between a man who makes good money because of the position he's in but does not sabotage the country And the other guy who does the same thing, but at the same time he does that at direct uh, detriment of the country, that he's hurting with that. Um, So the oligarch, in the Russian sense of the word, is not only a rich person, he's a rich person who's meddling in politics with the deliberate desire to milk Russia for every possible ruble. I'm not aware of that kind of oligarchs in Russia right now. They're still making money, you know, they're supporting the, the opposition to Putin, but generally they're not... Anywhere near the kind of power that a guy like Khodorkovsky was trying to achieve just before he fell from power.
0: Saker, thank you very much.
1: That has been a pleasure. Thank you so much to you again. It's a joy and an honor. something happening Yeah, yeah. What it is exactly clear. There's a man with over there.
0: I've been speaking with the Saker. Today's show has been Trump and Putin setting the record straight. The Saker was born in a military family of white Russian refugees in Western Europe where he lived most of his life. After completing two college degrees in the United States, he returned to Europe where he worked as a military analyst until he lost his career due to his vocal opposition to the Western-sponsored wars in Chechnya, Croatia, Bosnia, and Kosovo. After retraining as a software engineer, he returned to the United States where he now lives with his family. He has been blogging since 2007 as The Saker and his essays have attracted a large audience. He is the author of The Essential Saker: From the Trenches of the Emerging Multipolar World. Visit thesaker.is. That's the S A K E R.is. I-S stands for Iceland. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at GunsAndButter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at Faulkner at GunsAndButter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Hey, yo!
1: of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the
0: spirit sniper trying to steal your life you know what I'm saying look what's inside yourself for peace give thanks live life and release you dig me